millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was watching an interview with you today where you were discussing, where you kind of talked briefly about this Daily Rituals book, which I haven't read, but I ordered after I heard you talking about it because that idea kind of really fascinated me. Yeah, I was at a cafe a couple of years ago. I was talking to my friend who's like a visual artist and he told me about it. And then I, my buddy Ernest from Washed Out also kind of recommended it to me. So that's like the classic. Once I get two recommendations, then I've got to get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm always like, I think a big thing when you're a kid and you want to be an artist or a musician is like, you know, it's how do you do it? And and, you know, when I was figuring out how to do this, it was kind of pre-YouTube, so it's not, I don't know, you're, you're kind of just like shooting in the dark in a lot of ways. Like, you don't really know what's out there. And you're like, I would obsess over like some interview with like Kevin Shields or something about his pedal board and what synths he used and what guitar he used and how they recorded in the studio and the daily rituals is interesting because it's just like uh, it's all different art forms and uh, pursuits and I don't know just the way people work and like how they actually accomplish things because it's hard you know and especially I think with the phone and the internet and now the pressure I think on artists to uh, you know kind of be their publicity and and do their own marketing at the same time has like really created I think a a difficulty for people to, I don't know, just have space and time to really make work. And I, th- I think it's really important to figure out how to separate your work from Instagram and the ways people kind of find it. I mean, it saps up a lot of time, like just doing the posts and all that kind of stuff. Like you don't think about it, but you know, we put out like five of these a week. And even if you just spend half an hour putting together the post for each one, it adds up. It's endless. Like I feel like since we announced the record, I've done very little music because I just have to do all this social media stuff all the time, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's not my favorite, but I I do love the ability to connect directly with our fans and people of the bands, but it's, it's a lot. And it, it, I think it's a little bit poisonous for, for the craft. And I don't know, I can't say that like, it just feels like with a lot of artists, some of them are just big because they're social media, like more so than the actual music, you know, like it seems like it's more important in a lot of ways. I feel like that's also more ephemeral though. Like that goes fast. It does. But in terms of like, yeah, like tangible success, I don't know. It's like, it's, <laughs> I don't know, like the cash me outside girl is like playing like 3000 seat clubs in America. It's like, it's, it's real. Like there is like. Who is? 
uh, <laughs> I forget her name, like Bad Baby or something. She just had like uh, this moment on a tabloid talk show where she told the host, to, she said, cash me outside, like come meet me outside and we'll fight. And she basically has turned it into a, like a legitimate rap career. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's like, it's pretty wild what, what you know, can lead to success in the age of TikTok and YouTube and replayable videos on Twitter. It's just like, I don't know, it's wild. It's not something I could have ever seen coming. Yeah, that kind of idea of a viral moment. Yeah, yeah, and it can just kind of come from anywhere and it's, I don't know though, I think it's more sinister than that in terms of like the TikTok like marketing or, I don't know, I think it's pretty calculated a lot of these moves, so... In terms of like running on algorithms. Yeah, and I think there's like companies that do this stuff, you know, they kind of do it for you. It's like the whole idea of like PR and promotion, I think, is like drastically changed in the past couple of years. And, and that stuff is, you know, honestly a lot more powerful than a review on some like prestigious website. It, it like, as far as like tangible success and like, money it's it's uh i don't know it's got a lot more teeth yeah for sure and it feels like the kind of music industry pr always takes 10 years to catch up to it oh yeah it's never uh, it's never ahead of the curve it's always just behind it yeah it's i don't know we're in a weird moment with press and and kind of what its role is and it's very different than, than we put our first record out 10 years ago it's just a completely different playing field. Yeah. The idea of doing something like this 10 years ago, sitting down and having a conversation for an hour as opposed to 15 minutes about the record was probably quite alien. Oh, yeah. It, it's, well, there wasn't really any way to hear it, you know? I mean, you could have put it on YouTube, but it just wasn't a cultural thing to like, it's like the podcast app kind of changed everything on, on the iPhone. Yeah. Especially when it becomes blended like you say on YouTube with video. Yeah. And that's yeah. when the viral moment happens. For sure. To come back to the Yeah, let's the daily talk about r- let's talk about something fun. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this stuff. <laughs> I was gonna say to come back to the Daily Rituals book. So the the basic idea of it is a hundred different people across that it's Einstein, Plato, Picasso, all these different people, how their what their daily routines were. Yeah. Have you adopted any new habits from? <laughs> well, the one that really sticks for me is was Francis Bacon is like just Everybody else has these sort of like very neat days and they, they're very regulated and they try to like do work every day. And like, <laughs> they were like, you go into Francis Bacon studio and it's just covered in broken wine bottles across the whole floor. <laughs> he doesn't show up to the studio till generally like 1 a.m. and then works work to like 8 a.m. And just it just seemed like complete mania. And you're like, oh yeah, look at this guy's work. It's like exactly this life that he's living. Um, <laughs> I would yeah, say a lot of chaos in his I would say from reading that, like it made me want to become a morning person, and I just am not good at it. I, I feel like I don't know. Musicians are just never very good at the morning. It's just not like when you're working, you're on tour. It's like you know, you're never home from a show till like two, three a.m. So you inevitably are like sleep until ten or eleven. But I don't know. I, I do feel like there's something there's like mornings when I do get up and like accomplish some writing or some songwriting before like nine or ten. Like I feel really good about myself and not like a, a derelict uh, chill wave musician. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what would prompt one of the mornings when you get up and start working before 9 a.m.? Uh, probably I can't sleep, you know, or I uh, actually went to bed at a, at a good time. I don't know. I, I feel like each week presents a new schedule and a new, uh, like whatever I do on Sunday kind of sets the tone for the week. And in the summer, I think Sunday tends to become a little bit more fun <laughs> and it kind of sets me up to have a disaster week generally. So I think that I, I do write a lot more in the winter generally. Like it's just, it's a time in New York to really be alone and, I don't know. You're not missing out on so much. So, during that tone slips into the music too, the kind of slight starkness of the New York winters. Yeah, for sure. I, I always have thought of our band as like uh, 
like winter at the beach in New York. That's like the main like imagery that goes with it to me. Dark skies. Yeah. Yeah, it's a time to take a second and think about what you've been doing. Do you go to the beach quite often? Yeah, I mean, I, I was raised in Long Island pretty close to the beach. So I grew up going, you know, a couple times a week in the summer. And yeah, I generally go like once or twice a week. I think people don't really get that. New York is a beach town, you know, like it's the summer is all about, you know, Rockaway and Coney Island and kind of forgetting that you're within a couple miles of this like monstrous metropolis and you, you just get a second to kind of be among, I don't know, among the folks and in the water and it's restorative and I don't know, I, I grew to like New York a lot more, I think, once I started going as a city resident a lot more it it kind of i don't know it just softens the place a little bit just coney island and you know those what was the place you said rockaway rockaway yeah do they feel like a part of the city or are they something slightly separate oh uh, what i always love about it is that you can see like the manhattan skyline from them because it's so low maybe not from coney island but from rockaway you can like we made a music video called the bridge and like I really wanted to shoot in Rockaway just because I love those. I love that perspective, like the wideness of it. I always have the memory like of honestly watching the Twin Towers from the beach in 2011, 2001, because you can see it all the way from Long Island. You can see the smoke. So I don't know. I, I think it's just like it's a bit humbling, like how small the city looks from where you're at at the beach. And I don't know. I f- it makes me understand the scope of the place. In a way that when you're inside Manhattan, you don't really, other than when you you know, take a look up at a tall building. But honestly, I don't even go into the middle of the city other than like once a year. So <laughs> I feel like I'm always downtown if I'm, I am in Manhattan. So yeah, it's just a chance to like look at, look at this place and think about what it is and, you know, humanity's desire to reach the sky. And I don't know. Yeah, looking at it as well in terms of when you're in New York, it can feel like the whole world. And maybe when you're on the beach and you see it in the distance, you realize that it's not quite as big as it seems or? No, it looks real. I mean, it looks really it looks big huge. to me. It's really impressive. <laughs> like, I'm like, this place is wild. I can't believe people did this. Yeah. And it's nice to have a little bit of like the calm of the ocean. And I don't know. I think it's just a chance to really think about what it is to live in a city and just how huge it is. And, uh, it, it it's it's more humbling to me. It makes me realize how you know how small I am. When when did you move into the city from Long Island? Uh, two thousand four. Yeah, I've lived here for a long time. I've been in Brooklyn for sixteen years. How come you moved in? Did you move in for work or college or? Yeah, I got a job. That was I got my first job. I was uh working as an editor for major league baseball so wow <laughs> yeah it's a different life i really w- still was trying to do a band and i just needed like this was like the thing i did to try to get some money so i could like have a practice space and yeah i don't know i've been working on music with ryan and small black since 2003 so it's a really it's a long-term uh, relationship <laughs> normally when people move to new york we kind of associate it or this idea of reinventing yourself a little bit. Is that harder to do when you initially lived so close? Cause I mean, what, what what's uh, Long Island? Like 20 miles, 25 or something? Yeah, I grew up like 35 minutes out on the train from this, from like downtown Manhattan. Um, so yeah, it's like 20 miles or something where like I lived pretty close to Queens. Yeah, I mean, the whole record to me is about like feeling like very much a New Yorker and then also like kind of still feeling like an outsider as a Long Island kid. Like, yeah, it's a weird perspective. Like most, yeah, what reinvention is like the whole thing in New York. And it's like most of my friends are, you know, they're not from here. They're all like, they've all come here to chase a job or to chase art or music or um, I don't know, just to get out of where they are. So, I mean, I've got like such a deep family history. Like I live in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. My grandmother grew up here. My dad grew up in Queens, so did my mom, and then they moved to Long Island. I don't know. My, I, I just kind of have realized, like, like I don't really have a New York accent. I definitely don't have a Long Island accent on, on, on kind of on purpose. 
and I always wanted to get out of there so much. I, I really hated it. It's it's very conservative and it's very tough guy. Uh, it's pretty rough, you know. I, I I never felt like much of a part of the culture there. I always was kind of a you know weird kid in the band. It's kind of how I found my identity there, and it made sense that that's kind of what I brought with me to the city. But I do feel like I am a part of that culture, even if I don't really want to be. And I don't know. It's like I I always thought I would kind of leave and go to California or, you know, someplace, someplace else. And really, I I made it about, you know, I made it like 20 miles from from my family's house. So (laughs) I'm just kind of stuck here. How come you thought you go to California? Um, I, my dad was, uh, he had a really romantic, I think, like adolescence and like young 20s life. He just was a, a crazy hitchhiker and he hitchhiked to California when he was like 15. And then he did it like six years in a row. And he just like lived on the beach and was a surfer. And he was, he drove cars for this guy, Gary Lewis, who was, like kind of a minor pop star in like the late 60s. He's Jerry Lewis, the comedian's son. Um, ah, okay. And yeah, he just kind of presented this really romantic image of the place. And I, I mean, I love California. I think it's the best. I just, and I haven't like, I don't know. I've ha- found it hard to get out of here. <laughs> it's interesting what you were saying as well about how you feel like perhaps slightly reluctantly you were still a part or still are a part of that Long Island kind of culture. Where do you see it in yourself? What did you kind of mean by that? Well, New York is like, you know, there's all like the sort of bullshit, like New York tough, New York strong stuff, you know, <laughs> like like Andrew Cuomo will say that. But like, you know, there is sort of like a, there's a no bullshit thing that comes with being a New Yorker. Like, you know, you are, the first time you go to the city as a kid, and, and this was probably when I was a little different, like, you know, people try to scam you on the street. People, you know, you, you realize very quickly to like not talk to anyone because they all want something from you. And I think it's made me a little bit, not jaded is not the word, but just like wary, you know. And I, you know, I, I and I think it's a street smarts thing, you know. And, and it, I see the difference with some of my friends who aren't from here. And, you know, they it happens to them too after they've been here for a minute. But like, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Like, I, I actually find New Yorkers to be very, very helpful when something's wrong, but they, we, they, they will think about it for a second because you're just trying to see if whatever's happening, if it's, if it's a scam. Like I remember, uh, in high school, I went and saw, I went and saw De La Soul in the city. This guy came up to us after the show and we were really, we were kids. We were like 14, maybe. And he, he was like, just tell me three things and I'll rap about it. (laughs) I forgot what we said. I know one of them was aliens. And I think maybe the other thing was pizza and something else dumb, you know, like whatever I was into then. And then he proceeded to actually just do the, one of the worst raps I've ever heard. And then pretty much forced us to give him, because he was very big, like forced (laughs) us to give him $20 for his horrible CDR mix cd so like i don't know there's like that scammer thing in new york that's like i don't know it is kind of like intrinsic to to living here um yeah and as far as the long the long island thing i was really influenced by this book called holy land for that i read like during making this record it's written by this guy dj waldy it's about it's like it's like a hundred sort of prose entries about growing up in Lakewood, California, which is actually like kind of the equivalent of Long Island, but it's the first suburb in Cal- California. My mom actually grew up in Levittown, which is, I don't know if you know, is like the first suburb in, in the country. Built for the military guys. Yeah, it's like my, my her dad was um, a GI and fought in World War II and, you know, her family got a house there. And yeah, she's like literally one of those like test families. So this book I just thought was like, I feel like the suburbs gets a lot of crap and for, for, for good reason all the time in America, especially in art and music culture. You know, it's like kind of, you know, there's a lot of terrible things about it. And 
you know, it can be very xenophobic and it's very inclusive. But like, I think this book, he just was kind of looking at some of the sweeter parts of it and just like trying to be honest about what it is to live there. And I don't know, it just, I thought it was really beautiful and, and like, I don't know, it just kind of touched me and it kind of snuck into the record. I, the song Postcard is definitely like, it's kind of about being unapologetic about your life, you know, and not having to feel bad about it. That's interesting because it's probably the dancey song on the record. Very bright in that way. Yeah, the lyrics I think are really uh, a bit downtrodden though in a way I like, you know, it's about being resigned and it's about acceptance, which I think is kind of a really beautiful sentiment when you can actually believe it. <laughs> <laughs> acceptance of where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, and just being okay with it and like accepting the good and the bad and kind of how it made you what you are. Yeah. I guess it's just something that comes with time. Once you can kind of see it and frame it in the trajectory of your life as a whole, you kind of realize that often played a pretty positive role in shaping who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like thinking about riding bikes with my friends uh, uh, and hopping through yards and uh, sneaking into the city on the, on the Long Island Railroad. I don't know. This is this is my life and those formative experiences make you whether you like it or not very idyllic yeah it's a lot some of it for sure didn't you uh go to the same high school as twisted sister i did yeah yeah <laughs> d snyder yeah he came to our christmas concert one year wow they did like the 12 days of christmas bit and he it was like on the 12th day of christmas my true love came to me and then d snyder just screamed I want to rock. <laughs> it was honestly pretty amazing. I know I've had a bunch of D Snyder run-ins. I remember in high school, my bandmate ran into him at like the local record store. And like, he just like started talking to my friend, Mike, and he just bought him all these CDs. So we kind of like, we have a soft spot for D for sure. <laughs> How come you decided to open the album with a song set in Florida of a lot of it kind of concerns where you grew up in New York and your relationship to it? Well, Florida is just kind of an extension of Long Island in a lot of ways. Like, it's kind of where you go, like, where it's where your parents end up going or, like, your uncle or... Um, it's where I grew up going on vacation with my family. Like, the, the, the song is, like, from the perspective of a couple that's, like, kind of having a meltdown on a trip and it's, like... You know, there's some of that from my parents' time down there. And I don't know. I just look at it as a place we, we like to idealize in New York, as a, as, as a, a place to escape to. Yeah, I think in an interview, I, I, I mentioned it's, it's kind of like, it's like heaven for, for New Yorkers in a lot of ways, you know. And I don't know, Tampa is just like this, I don't know. It, it's, it's just like this weird paradise that's like, you know, it's not perfect but it, it, it is. Is it almost like what the suburbs are for families, Florida is for older people? Yeah, for sure. It's it's where you go to check out. Yeah, I was legit talking to my dad last week and he, he was telling me he kind of wants to move to Florida now. I'm like, see, I was right. <laughs> look, look, I know how this goes. <laughs> I mean, you get the sun. They're pretty low taxes as well, aren't they? Yeah, there's no income. There's no state income tax, so... Perfect. Yeah, it's very enticing for someone on you know you know on a on a fixed in income later in life. So yeah, I, I, I again I feel like it's like the, I have the same sort of feeling. I feel like I was very negative of, about Florida, and now I'm like, well, I think it'd be fun if you went there, Dad. I'll come see you. <laughs> <laughs> Get a holiday in the sun. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Just don't don't make it that complicated. It's like it's that's that's enough. That uh, that story you mentioned that kind of spawned Tampa is that a hypothetical story in your mind, or is that something that's kind of pulling from real life? It's just like about relationships I've had or my parents had. It, it is hypothetical. It's not like a real story. Some of those songs kind of come together through the details, you know. And, and I know that song was like that's a demo from like. I don't know, 2011 that I like kind of stumbled onto. And I was like, I love this melody. I always did. And I just never had a lyric I thought was very good for the the music. I just had that part about the empty ball field in the dark. And, and I just felt like it had that sort of suburban night 
in the suburbs in paradise so thing and i don't know it kind of just led to tampa once you have that lyric is that almost like the magic key does that unlock the door to finish the song yeah i feel like for us like we don't really get too attached to music until there's like a really strong hook or or like a really strong verse that feels like the song has a place and uh and an intent otherwise you know we make so much music there's I know we take forever to make records, but I mean, there's endless amounts of demos and, and ideas, but I don't know, to concoct full songs that are good, it just takes a lot of trial and error and a lot of cutting a lot of stuff. So, How did you go about, because you said that you love the demo, you love the melody of it, how did you go about taking it into the sound of this record and the sound that you had there? without inhibiting the spark that was making you enjoy it so much well like that one particularly was based off a weird sample that's actually not in the the final version and i think it took us a while it's just kind of lo-fi and it's it's a little bit too crappy to fit the rest of the elements of that of, of the final tampa version but i think it was really actually freeing when we muted it and it sounded good and we're like, oh, yeah, we can kind of recreate this feeling like through, you know, with just making things that sound maybe a little bit better, a little bit more widescreen. But yeah, that I mean, that's always a battle is to like not not lose that original spark. There's like the Leonard Cohen quote that's uh, he's like, just don't ever stray too far from the origin of your song. And I do try to think about that. It, it's it, it's important to like not lose that original intent. For sure. I think as well, you used the phrase there, widescreen. And when I first heard the record, the way that I kind of framed it in my mind was indie film story with blockbuster kind of production. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of, it comes back to that, that you have that intimacy at the heart of it. And then you kind of have these swathes of big production, like propping them up. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think this has been kind of a journey for the band from the beginning. Like Our first stuff is like, you know, sounds like we made it on like a VHS tape and that's like by design because I don't know, we just didn't have that much gear and I like lo-fi music and it's, it was like just, we were at least humble enough to like, we know how to write songs that are pretty good, but we're still like getting our feet wet as producers. And I think through each record, we get a little bit better. And, you know, basically we do these records at home, you know, we do them at our home studios. We've never recorded it ever in a studio. So it's, it is about like our our I hate the word journey. I feel like it's the most overused thing ever. But like progression, <laughs> yeah, progression's better <laughs> as as uh, producers and writers. A journey and storytelling are just uh, I, I can't take it anymore. Like uh, it's, ever, <laughs> it's I can't take those words. <laughs> I feel like journey's a little bit too like kind of self help, isn't it? It's very like yeah, this is my six day juice cleanse journey. <laughs> Uh, like Instagram. Not everything's a, not everything's a journey. It took only took six days. It took you that long to find kale. Maybe that was more interesting. <laughs> is it? It's interesting. You know, we're talking about your progression as producers there, or is that? Is it the same process when you're building a soundscape without vocals? Because you have a couple instrumentals on this album. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's something we've wanted to do. It's it can be really hard to find the right one, and like. We probably had like six or seven instrumentals that were in the running for like making the record and being used to kind of break up some of the songs. Those just honestly tend to be pretty improvisational. Like the second one is just a purely a jam from when we kind of were at a house. It's like verbatim, not edited really at all. So it was the first one actually. Yeah, that's also a jam from when, you know, we were just were at some house somewhere upstate. Um comes back to the intimacy thing yeah it's kind of about like the band hanging out and, and just like not thinking about it too much and you know un unfortunately when you add lyrics to the mix like it really does force it to be more planned and calculated um and that's why those instrumentals are a really great little space to just do what we want and like not have to think about it too much because there's just not as much context or you're not trying to like, you're just trying to get a feeling across, not necessarily any sort of meaning or, or, you know, whatever a lyric connotes to somebody. When, when you had those six or seven you were trying to choose from, did they have titles at that point? 
Yeah, some of them did. There's like there's another one that's like an ambient version of the song "The Bridge" that we threw on Spotify. That was cool. We were like trying to bring the theme of that song back, but it just kind of didn't fit. And I don't know, honestly, I I like records to be efficient. Like I don't I like like forty forty five minutes to me is like perfect. I, like I especially in the the streaming world like. I just generally don't, I don't know. I'm not a fan of like double LPs. Like I don't care. Like I really just want to hear your eight best songs. <laughs> and like, I mean, the Blue Nile, one of my favorite bands, the, the Glaswegian Legends. I mean, all their records are like seven songs or eight songs. So, and there's no crap. So that's kind of what we're after. I don't know. Yeah. The instrumentals are just like, they're really helpful though, as far as like just breaking up the the lyrical content and like giving the listener a chance to reflect on it, have a little bit of space. Uh, right. I've been like, we've been working on the live show. We're kind of just starting to get deep into that. And I've just been really racking my brain about how to incorporate this, that same sort of space and, uh, and you, with you get from those instrumentals into the live experience as well without being too boring. Because people do want to engage with the band, you know, first and foremost at a show. You could come out to one of the instrumentals. Yeah, I got that on the list for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the track order right now for the live show, ambient intro, intro is definitely track one so far. Nice. <laughs> it's interesting what you were saying about how, you know, they offer you that space to kind of just free jam. And when you bring in the vocal, it does naturally place those kind of restrictions and clamp it down a little bit. How how does it function for you when you take one of the main elements of a song out like you do on... And because it's service merchandise where there's not really a rhythm section. There's no bass or drums. It's just kind of synths and keys. Yeah, that was that track was my baby for the record. I kept having to fight to make sure it got on there. I just think the listener needs that. When I listen to some of our old records, you know, I, 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 I'm proud of a lot of our music, but you're always like, oh, this could have been better, this could be good and i'm always like we just need a song that doesn't have drums it like it just gives the listener also a break from drums and it makes you like you know a bigger beat when it comes back in on the next track and i, I don't know that track specifically to me was like kind of the emotional heart of the record and it definitely like really sets it in a, in in long island and in the suburbs and at your crappy job at the mall and yeah, it was a chance for me, I think, to really just get some lyrics in there I wanted to. I think it's really hard. To, I think the degree of difficulty for our stuff is pretty hard, like, to try to, I don't know, try to storytell in synth pop. It's, 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 I think it's pretty unique, you know. I, I think that's why I love the Blue Nile, because they're able to do it. it. It's not the easiest thing. It's These songs don't necessarily, like... They don't ask for that level of, of thoughtfulness necessarily with a song. You know, it's like a lot of the best synth pop stuff is just, you know, the lyrics can be really dumb or not even dumb, just like really simple and to the point. You know, so many OMD tracks are just like straight banger hooks. And I don't, I mean, I love it. You know, I, I think it's great. It's it just, it's trying to like find any sort of poetry in it it can be it can be hard and it takes a long time to get it right so i was just really happy to like not have to have drums to battle with and kind of get to say exactly what i wanted to on that song and the thing i love about it as well is that it gives a chance for those smaller details that would usually be a little bit lower in the mix to shine yeah thank you um yeah like the i think like the rhythm in that track is like there's like one tom hit that comes in like three times on that song and, and like you know it's probably the most impactful drum hit on the record in a lot of ways because it's one you really notice so it's gonna be a big moment yeah. live yeah it'll be really fun and is that the only song that's got auto-tune on it as well uh no we sneak that in in some other places too the driftwood fire chorus definitely has it we kind of use it like a vocoder sometimes yeah i think driftwood fire has it and maybe one other one i'm thinking of it it's always a tricky decision to know had to use it properly and i think we like it really helps a vocal to sit in the mix with in in synth music and synth pop like it really does like make it more of a part of the full instrumentation like to have some of that perfection um and i don't know i i think 
I really like how on service merchandise it kind of is against the minimalness of the track and like it, I like that you can really hear it. It's interesting to think about it on the chorus of Driftwood Fire too though because that's a song that almost functions a little bit like a conversation you know it's told from two different perspectives. Were you bringing it in on that song to kind of distinguish the characters apart from each other? I think we just realized that the chorus needed something and that it was it needed a lift yeah, it just needed to that superhuman element, and and maybe that's kind of yeah. I, I kind of didn't think about it like that. It just needed like it didn't need separation from the verse, and it really wasn't working until we kind of figured that effect out. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but it it really it does kind of <laughs> make that conversation make make sense to me. See, this is a good interview. Once once if I, if I figure something out about my own song, it's like after my job. Your job, yeah. <laughs> Did you think about that a lot for that song then? Did you think about how you were going to distinguish the two characters or was it not something that really concerned you and you were more just focused on the narrative of that? Well, it, I mean, it's me singing it. So, it, you know, there's not a second voice. So, I, you know, what... Sometimes it takes... I think a lot of times, like, I, I've got a lot of cool imagery for a song and I've got sort of a loose narrative and then the finishing touch a lot of time will be to, like, find the exact perspective because in getting all the pronouns and the and the correct like so that that it tells a story and yeah i think i got that this late that conversation part of it and it's funny like i i can't i i told this story recently um so that that song is kind of like about from the perspective of like my uncle who's a surfer and board shaper on long island to like someone that was like his protege and he was kind of like teaching how to shape boards and and like you know someone that he would go surf with in the morning my uncle actually learned how to shape boards in Hawaii from this this guy Ben Aipa, who's a really legendary uh, surfer and and a really legendary board shaper. Like his company is like huge, and I know my uncle like went kind of like hung out at his shop for months and when he was like twenty, young twenties, and that's where he really learned. And like I started to think like, oh, and he just Ben Aipa, this he just passed actually in in January, and. I was like, oh, this is the sim- This is like the exact same story as the one I was telling, like from the perspective of like one of these guys that we used to hang out with my uncle at the beach. One of the younger guys. It's like he was actually the younger guy in the situation, and he, this is the guy he learned. And it's kind of like, I don't know. It's like, I think I do really. I'm not a surfer, but I love the culture, and I kind of was raised among it. And I do think it's like this very communal thing, and, and it is something that's passed down and. I don't know. I think that's like kind of in in, in the chorus of the, that song. Oh, yeah, like a master apprentice dynamic. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever had that in your life? Have you ever had someone that you've or a teacher rather that you've completely devoted yourself to? Well, I've got to say, I've got to say no. Like I, I, I've kind of always been jealous of people that have that like deep mentor that they kind of learn from. I think I've always pulled from a lot of different. Sources. I don't know. Like music is just something I kind of found on my own. Like it's not. My dad never played music. My mom didn't. My mom's mom actually was uh, like a pianist, but she she passed when I was very young. So it's not someone I really learned from. There just was like at least some of that within like the family DNA. But yeah, I don't know. I mostly kind of had really good advice from my parents and kind of taught myself. In college, I studied with um. A couple writers that I really like. This guy Fred Bush, who's a really pretty successful novelist, and then also this guy Jacques Levy, who was a playwright and a theater director, and he actually directed um, the Bob Dylan stage show, The Rolling Thunder Review, in the early seventies. So uh, I, was, I know that name. They probably mentioned him in the documentary. He's only in it for a second because I think his family is suing Bob Dylan right now because <laughs> because um, he wrote Desire with Bob Dylan. He's like the one of the only guys ever to get co-writes with Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan just sold the publishing catalog and I think he just didn't cut. He didn't obviously he just didn't cut those songs into Jacques Jacques past but to his family's estate. So yeah, I think I, think I saw on like Pitchfork that he was suing them. So it's pretty hilarious. It always gets messy. <laughs> yeah, Bob don't really care. <laughs> He probably doesn't even know what's going on. No, he probably was like, "How? I'll take that deal. He doesn't care. Who? Fred Bush was the other one. What would I know him from? Because it's another name I recognize. He wrote a book called Girls. He's not like a huge novelist, but he's just a really smart guy. And it was really, 
encouraging t- to me over some stuff I wrote and some like horrible book I wrote when I was, you know, 20 or something. So what was the book about? Um, <laughs> just girls. I don't know. Some, I was young and dumb, but it, you know, there were some good parts. <laughs> I would definitely never read it again. That's for sure. <laughs> Who were you kind of taking inspiration from at that time? I'm interested where it would kind of fit in. Oh, you know, I loved like Raymond Carver and uh, Flannery O'Connor and uh, yeah, I probably just ripping off Raymond Carver. I mean, that's how I really like. But yeah, I was just, I think my girlfriend broke up with me, so I was real sad about it. So I wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a step farther than writing a song about it. Yeah, pretty much. It was a novella, so it's like, it's it's something to do. <laughs> can it's interesting to think about though like that i the idea of writing songs and writing books could you would you ever like take inspiration from literature in terms of like using storytelling devices that might be more common there in songwriting yeah i mean i pull from books all the time i read a lot i think it's a great place to find ideas for songs plus i just like to read writers that write well it just kind of helps you to not sound like a dummy um and phrase (laughs) things well yeah, it's like our song style is like limiting in terms of like being able to really write some, you know, some like four verse epic song. But it, I mean, it's interesting to me. I've I've thought about like doing a folk record at some point I and mean, nobody will care, but I'll like it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely aspire to do writing. I write poems. Uh, I write short stories sometimes, but that's mostly for me. I mean, the bridge is kind of doing that, like completely placing yourself in someone else's shoes and telling a story through them. Yeah, that was really exciting to me. That was the first song we did for the record. It's really nice to get out of your own head, and I think it's it's freeing. And, you know, I, I do think, I don't know, I always want there to be some element of myself in the song since I have to go in front of people and sing it because I want to feel conviction and that I can get behind it. So... I'm going to get into somebody else's head, I've, I've got to feel like I really know where they're coming from because I, I, you know, it, it's on me to be convincing. And yeah, I just knew my uncle really well and it was fun to kind of use some of his language in the song too. There's a part where, it, where it, the lyric is getting tuned up and that's like when we would like get drunk, that's what he would call it. Um, he calls people bums in the song, I put that in. Uh, that's a I very old New York kind of thing. Oh yeah, I mean, they're... My my family is has very thick Long Island accents, and they're very hilariously, like brutal and and <laughs> ball busters. Like, I mean that that's really that's the culture I come from. I mean maybe that's what I feel kind of linked to is like just the constant busting people's chops, uh, like tough love stuff, you know. And I I do really like that, and and it is kind of a part of a lot of my relationships with my friends and um, I think there's a sweetness to it that I, I do love and I learned a lot from my uncle and my dad and yeah I, I don't know the bridge is a really sad song but I feel a lot of power in being able to do it and I feel like a lot of honoring of my uncle's memory when we get to do it and it's 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 definitely emotional I, I, I you know we haven't really got to play it for anybody yet but I think it's going to be pretty heavy when we do was the fact that you were writing from his perspective also fueling it sonically? Because it's quite different to everything else in the record. Yeah, I don't, you know, that was like Juan, Juan really brought that guitar riff and that bass line to the band. And we were like, we got to do this. We just really want something fast like this. That's going to be so fun to play live. I thought that, yeah, maybe the lyric kind of helped to bring it more into the world of the record, even though it's sonically a little bit different. You know, you can get kind of stuck and lumped into the synth pop or like down tempo chill wave thing. And I'm just like, you know, it's like this song is 152 BPMs. Like it's really fast. It's ripping. Like if you come to the show, it's not going to be, you know, this is not down tempo Ibiza chill out. You know, like we're going to, it's going to be pretty rip ripping. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I just felt like I. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I love the tempo and, and like my uncle is such an athlete and like such a badass. Like <laughs> he was like him and my dad are just like insane workout people. Like they've just have been doing all these insane workouts since the 70s. Like they built all their own gear. Like, my dad used to just have these like what look like medieval torture 
devices in my basement, which was just like some like rocks with like a rope tied through it that he'd have to like pull up for his forearms. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they're hardcore. Like, and, and they, what they were really into was running at the beach in the sand because it's brutal. So, did you sink like, into it? It's so hard, you know, if to like go put in five in like the sand, it, it's re- it's something to do. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I just I like sort of the physicality of that. And like, I think it does kind of maybe that's why when I heard that music from Juan, it kind of I don't know, it just kind of led me there as a lyricist. Isn't your dad trying to break like a world javelin record as well at the moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's down at the beach throwing all the time. Yeah, he's uh. He was the javelin thrower in in college. He like tried out for the Washington football team as like a wide receiver. So he's just kind of like this insane. Like he's a very was a very good athlete. And yeah, he threw the javelin in college. And I don't know. He's always after some crazy feat. So yeah, he's been he's been working trying to break the U.S. senior javelin record. I don't know how close he is, but I'm I'm really into the quest. <laughs> that's a journey for sure i know i didn't say it <laughs> <laughs> i thought it though <laughs> how um do you like would you do you see that kind of competitiveness that they have with themselves and yourself do you feel like quite competitive with yourself when it comes to your creativity and bettering yourself in that way <laughs> for sure yeah i'm pretty relentless but yeah not with sports i'm horrible at sports <laughs> but uh um I mean, I work really hard at this and I do take that sort of relentlessness from my dad. You know, I think he, I don't know, he just wouldn't really take no for an answer with things. Like if he thought he could be the best at something, he would try, even if it was crazy, which is, you know, which is trying to break the U.S. javelin record at 70 years old. But, uh, (laughs) you know, definitely like instilled the kind of why not why not me attitude in me and but also just like if you want to do it you know you've got to put in all the work and you need you really i don't know there's no there's kind of no excuse you know like he's i don't know he he really had a strong work ethic and the working out kind of is i don't know you can't you can't really go around him and just kind of be a bum because you're just going to feel bad about yourself so (laughs) I don't know. He he he's he definitely made me a little crazy, and I'll take it. You know, he definitely wanted my sister and I to be great. He would tell us that, and maybe that's led me on this path to try to do something cool. So it kind of comes back to the daily routine thing a little bit too, doesn't it? This idea of working at bettering yourself every day and that relentless work ethic. Yeah, it's. I know. All the best people are doing that, and that's what that book kind of confirms. It's like, you got to put in the work, otherwise, you know, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, and I think with the band, we know that too, and we're also not cocky enough to think that everything we do is really good. You know, it's like we know that half the songs we're going to do probably suck, and, you know, then out of those half that are okay, we've got to find, like, the... 20% 20% of them that are, have the potential to be special. So it's, it's, it's definitely a constant grind to, to, to get the, the, the good stuff. One final question before we go. Is disclosure on the horizon? <laughs> this is more Juan and Ryan's territory. Um, I'm like the resident skeptic in the band, but I do, I do play along. Um, probably, right? It seems like every week I feel like I see a new article on Twitter and... We'll have to get Juan's perspective to really know know <laughs> what what the current status is. But yeah, probably. I mean, might as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Trump. What well, we should clarify this actually. We're talking about it, who is Juan got in touch with Clinton's campaign manager about? Yeah, UFO Juan grew up in D.C., so he's like kind of like in the world of politicians' kids, and he knew he knew John Podesta's son from high school, and just had been over his house when he was in high school and then just randomly emailed him one day about, you know, what can you tell me about aliens? And I think John Podesta's response was, you don't even know Juan. So, <laughs> and then this, this was then leaked in like the big Hillary Clinton email leak 
like right before the 2016 election and like Juan's face was on like a Breitbart. It was hilarious. So he's like, <laughs> he got his alien UFO, UFOlogist cred in there. He, he's definitely a, a member of the, of the club now for sure. I think, didn't Trump order when he was leaving office that they had to release all info on UFOs within 180 days? Or like six months Yeah, later? Yeah, there was definitely rumors that Trump was going to blow the roof off of... of disclosure but I, I don't know what happened i think he chickened out yeah i mean there's, there's definitely something going on yeah i mean there's got to be other stuff out there right i mean why not they probably don't want to talk to us anyway though we're, we're pretty annoying <laughs> planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.